And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time he spent on the earth as a man performing miracles and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. The life of Jesus, as we know, is documented in four books that are called the Gospels. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were three disciples who really lived with Jesus for the three years he ministered on the earth. And Luke was a physician and also a historian around the same time whose gospel is assembled as a historical, factual documentary about the life of Jesus. And today we're gonna be in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Matthew. And I always like to say this, you don't have to agree with what I teach today. We're gonna teach what we believe the Bible is saying clearly, but if you disagree, then you have to do the work of going and digging into it for yourself. You can't just dismiss it because you don't like the way it sounds or how it makes you feel. You have to take truth seriously and really be a seeker of truth because we believe there's nothing more important in life than knowing the truth. And we believe Jesus is the truth embodied in a man. So with that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. And a couple of weeks ago, we studied through an interaction that Jesus had with a man known in the Bible as the rich young ruler, an extremely wealthy politician who was seemingly devout to his faith and came to Jesus to ask what else he needed to do in order to be saved, in order to get to heaven. Jesus answered him and famously said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. And we're told that the man walked away in deep sadness before he had great wealth and he had no intention of giving it up to follow Jesus. We learned that the real issue wasn't that he had money, the issue was he wasn't willing to let the real God be his God above his money. He was unwilling to put Jesus before his wealth. The issue wasn't wealth, the issue was who got to be number one in this man's life. He was simply unwilling to let it be God. And then last week we listened in as Jesus spoke to his disciples about this interaction that happened with the rich young ruler and Jesus explained to them that salvation, being saved and forgiven by God is a gift from God. We're not saved because of who we are, we're saved because of who he is, a gloriously gracious God. Today the theme is gonna continue to be Jesus and his disciples and they're gonna make their way to a city called Jericho. But it's gonna be no coincidence who he interacts with in Jericho. In fact, it's going to tie together with the rich young ruler's interaction with Jesus and his conversation with his disciples in an amazing way. One that's gonna continue into next week's study So plan on being here for that. You don't want to miss how that's all going to tie together. But we're going to start by picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus has been talking with his disciples about the rich young ruler. He's just shared with them about his imminent crucifixion. They don't understand, can't understand yet. And so this next part of the conversation takes place. So in Mark's gospel, the following interaction is depicted as James and John, who are two of Jesus' disciples, asking Jesus a question. And here in Matthew's gospel, it's recorded as their mom showing up and asking Jesus a question. Given the detail that Matthew includes, I'm inclined to believe that their mother was indeed the one who asked Jesus the question at the request of their sons. Perhaps later on, as they're grown men, one of them gets a hold of Peter, 
who was the likely source of Mark's gospel and says, hey, hey, you know that detail about our mom asking Jesus a question for us? Yeah, that's not an important detail. It doesn't change the story. Why don't you just say it was me and John that asked the question, not our mom. Just leave our mom out of it. So whatever the case may be, we read that the mother of Zebedee's sons, so that's the mother of James and John, came to Jesus with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. The original Greek makes it clear she's assuming a posture of worship. So she's coming in before Jesus in a posture of worship as though she's there to worship, but she's not really there to worship. She's there to ask something of Jesus, which Jesus knew because he's Jesus. And I think we need to judge this woman harshly because can you imagine a person coming to church praying not to glorify God, but because they want something? I mean, the only person I could ever imagine operating that way would be all of us, right? So we just can't seem to find the the time or the energy to focus and connect with the Lord in our daily lives. We're, We're not expressive worshipers, and then we find ourselves needing something, and suddenly we turn into focused, devoted, expressive worshipers of Jesus. Suddenly church becomes a priority, and the transformation is astounding. Because we want something from the Lord. And so we come with a strategy of, you know, I'm going to worship for about a good 20 minutes. And then I'm just going to slip in my request to the Lord. That way it won't seem forced or desperate or manipulative. And God will be more likely to take care of me. You know, then sings my soul. Please pay my bills, Jesus. How great thou. Just smooth like that. I'm just going to slip it in. And Jesus is going to be like, well, you've been worshiping for 20 minutes. So I know your heart's in the right place. Okay, sure, I'll pay your bills for you. But what did Jesus say? He said, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. There's no need for us to play games with God. That's legalism. He sees right through us. God says, just talk to me anytime, anywhere. What's on your mind? What are you having a hard time with? What what do you need to get off your chest? Listen, the veil has been torn. We have access to the Father through Jesus right now. The way is open, and we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. You see, Jesus isn't really a fan of people trying to manipulate him, so he quickly, yet kindly, shuts this scene down. I think he's chuckling a little bit as he says to her, what do you wish? She said to him, well, since you're asking, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. And this cracks me up because it's the spiritual equivalent of an overbearing parent going to their child's little league coach and saying, listen, my kid is really, really good. Tons of potential. I think he should be batting first in the lineup. My kid's fantastic. He's just the best. Except multiply that sentiment by a billion. What do you want? Oh, nothing big. Just that, you know, my two boys would be the most important people uh, in your kingdom when you set it up on the earth. After God, of course. You see, despite Jesus speaking plainly about his impending death, his crucifixion, we know because the Bible tells us the disciples didn't get it yet. They couldn't get it yet. They thought the reason they were going to Jerusalem was so that Jesus could set up his kingdom on earth right there and then. They really thought they were about a week away from Jesus going to Jerusalem, calling heaven down to earth, setting up his throne in Jerusalem, and ruling the world. And so they're jockeying for position 
in this coming kingdom, they're like, we gotta get dibs on the best seats, man. Yeah, you're right, let's do that. Let's get our mom to ask Jesus if we can have that primo seating. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? What drink, what baptism is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God the Father. The cup where he stored up, so to speak, all of his wrath, all of God the Father's righteous judgment against everyone who ever has, is, and ever will reject him. There is indeed a fair, right, and just punishment for rejecting your maker and creator. God is good and a good God must punish evil. We all get that. The bad news for us is that we were all born into sin. We've all done evil. We all do evil. From God's perspective, we are all evil and a good God must judge evil. And so what God the Father did is he stored up all that judgment against evil, against you and I, all that wrath in a cup, so to speak, so that it could be poured out on Jesus the Son instead of us. And I'm of the view that Jesus suffered for every single one of my sins, every single one of your sins. I don't think he got a, a package deal. You know, it's a, it's a staggering thought because if I'm correct in that view, then the consequences are extremely troubling because my sins tomorrow have the capacity to add to the sufferings of Christ across time. It's a pretty staggering thought. You can't appreciate what Jesus did for you on the cross and continue to sin flippantly. We do, but it shouldn't be the case. Jesus would drink the Father's wrath. Jesus would be baptized in the Father's wrath. And even Jesus himself dreaded it for it was a more awful thing than any of us could possibly comprehend. This is why the night he was betrayed, Jesus prays to his heavenly father in the garden, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the cup he's talking about, the cup of his father's wrath. This is why Jesus answers the mother of James and John by saying, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Well, proving just the opposite, they said to him, we are able. Verse 23, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And indeed they would, for 11 of the 12 disciples would be tortured to death and the 12th, John, not for lack of trying. They attempted to boil him alive in oil unsuccessfully before exiling him on the island of Patmos where he received revelation. Then Jesus says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. So it's kind of a cryptic answer. He doesn't explain it. He just says, that's not my call. That's up to my Father. Within two weeks of this conversation, Salome, the mother of James and John, would find herself at the foot of the cross with Jesus hanging upon it and surely think to herself, 
I didn't understand. I didn't know what I was asking. But now I do. How do you think it hurt her when she heard the thief crucified next to Jesus say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And she heard Jesus reply, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, in my kingdom. She must have struggled to breathe as she realized that on the day Jesus returned to his kingdom, he would be hanging on a cross. And the men on his right and his left would also be hanging on crosses, crucified, not sitting on thrones. And she would have remembered asking, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. And she would understand why Jesus had replied, you do not know what you ask. You do not know what you ask. Sometimes we don't know what we're asking. Sometimes we think God is silent. He's non-responsive and he doesn't care about our issues when the truth is we don't know what we're asking. We don't know what he knows. We don't see what he sees. And if we could see what he sees, we too would say, I, I didn't know what I was asking. Where we don't have those answers, we trust in who Jesus is. He's our savior who loved us with his life. And when he asks us to simply trust him, he deserves to be simply trusted. Make a note of this. Sometimes we get no response from God because we simply don't know what we're asking. Sometimes we get no response from God because we simply don't know what we're asking. And him not acting is the kindest thing he could do in that moment. Verse 24, and when the 10, the other 10 disciples, other than James and John, heard it, when they heard about what James and John had done, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You got your mom to ask Jesus what? You tried to get a leg up in the kingdom? You tried to get ahead of us in the kingdom of God? They were furious. Furious over the fact they didn't think of it first. So Jesus calls them all together and says, boys, time for another lesson about how things work in the kingdom because you are way off. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. So he's saying this is how things work in the world system. Verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. But, and then underline the rest of this verse, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The word servant that is used there means minister or deacon. And the first church deacons were table servers. They were men appointed to help with the distribution of bread to the Hellenist widows. What a strange paradigm shift the kingdom of God is. The world says to be great you need to fight your way to a seat at the table. The kingdom of God says to be great, you need to be the one clearing the table, doing the dishes. So remember, there, there's only two systems at work in the world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. Only two. And Jesus is warning them that when we desire positions of authority and power so that we can dominate people, so that we can feel powerful, and lord it over them to feed our own egos, Jesus says that's demonic. That's part of the kingdom of Satan. That's what drives people in Satan's economy. That's not how my kingdom works. In verse 27, Jesus goes on and says, and whoever desires to be first, underline first among you, let him be your 
Slave, underlying slave. And the Greek word there is doulos. It means bondservant. It's a slave by choice. If you want to be great, be a busboy. You want to be even greater, be a slave. And here's, here's what I love about this. This is fascinating to me. Notice that in Jesus' system, desiring greatness, wanting to be great, wanting influence are not bad things. He doesn't say, if you want to be great, shame on you. That's not how my kingdom works. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says the path to greatness is being a servant. It's viewing yourself as a servant, becoming a slave by choice, viewing yourself as being here to serve your spouse, your family, your employer, your neighbors, your neighborhood. Make a note of this. In the kingdom of God, the greatest view themselves as servants and slaves. The greatest view themselves as servants and slaves. This is one of those verses that we don't really put on coffee mugs so that we can claim it, right? We don't put this one on the post-it note and put it on our steering wheel and be like, I'm claiming this from the word of God that I am a slave. Hallelujah. We don't do that. So here's a horrible, horrible question. How do I know if I'm living as a servant? How do I know how I'm doing with that? Here's how. How do I respond when people treat me like one? It's a horrible question, isn't it? When there's no thanks, when there's no acknowledgement, when people order you around and take you for granted, when they actually treat you like a slave or a servant, how do I respond? How dare you? How dare you? Don't you know what I do for you? Don't you know what I sacrifice for you? Well, anticipating our objections. Jesus is so good at that anticipating our objections to actually being treated like a slave or a servant, Jesus adds this little tidbit to the end of his talk with his boys. Verse 28, underline this phrase, just as the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in the place of many. Oh, Oh, that's rough. That's how Jesus lived. That's what Jesus did all the way to his death on the cross. And as Christians, we've made the choice to become like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the work we want the Holy Spirit to do in our lives. So make a note of this. The purpose of Jesus' life on the earth was to serve That's Jesus in his own words. The purpose of his life on the earth was to serve. To serve the will of his father. To even serve his creation by giving his life. Every believer has agreed to the process of sanctification. That's the process of the Holy Spirit making us more and more like Jesus over the course of our lives. Every believer is supposed to be excited about that process and looking forward to its completion when we arrive in heaven one day. And we get excited about becoming more like Jesus when it means living in a state of perfect peace. We get excited about becoming more like Jesus when we talk about having the power that Jesus had moving dynamically in our lives. Being able to have the the perfect answer and knowing what to say in every situation as we walk in perfect harmony with the Father. But we don't usually get excited when we realize the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us to empower us to live a slave slaves and servants to those the Lord has put in our lives. What? What? 
I was on board till you got to that last thing. Well, why do you think a man as great as the Apostle Paul still had to deal with putting his flesh, his sin nature, his own will to death, as he put it, every single day? It's because what Jesus is asking of us does not come naturally. It only comes from saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit over and over and over every single day in every situation. As you are invited and called to serve, there's that immediate tension. Do I say yes to the spirit or do I say yes to the flesh? Am I excited about becoming more like Jesus when it means taking a more lowly place and serving those the Lord has put in my life? Or do I say, I'll take the power, I'll take the peace, I'll take the joy, but I don't need to do the servant thing. Jesus said, that was the whole purpose of my coming, was not to be served, but to serve. And here's the great news. You're going to have a chance to put this into practice in the next 24 hours. Someone is going to invite you to be a servant. Someone's going to invite you to be a slave. No amens? That's strange, strange. Here's the real great news. Once again, we find that greatness in the kingdom of God is accessible to everyone. Anyone can choose to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're successful as living as a servant, there probably won't be a lot of glory for you in this life. But just you wait until you get to heaven. You're going to be blown away if you make the decision to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and live as a servant. Anyone can make the choice to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It's not the path that leads to glory in this life. It's taking the path of lowliness, being humble, viewing yourself as a servant. Well, turn with me, if you would, a couple of books ahead to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to spend the rest of our study in Luke's gospel. We're going to begin at Luke 18.35. Luke 18.35. Just the same sort of interaction is continuing. He's finished talking with his disciples, talking with Salome, the mother of James and John, and now they are moving. They're moving from where they've been down this road, past Jericho, heading toward Jerusalem. Verse 35, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now, we need to do something real quick. It's not exciting, but it's really important because there are those who will say, The Bible is full of discrepancies, inconsistencies. And this is one of the favorite places for people to point who say that, and here's why. This account appears in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with some differing details. In Luke, as we just read, they are coming to Jericho. In Matthew and Mark, they are leaving Jericho. Mark and Luke describe one blind man, while Matthew describes two. So let me explain this to you. Regarding the coming or going from Jerusalem, you need to know that there were two Jerichos at this time. The Jericho of Jesus' day was about five miles west of Jordan, 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Herod the Great and his successors had built a lavish palace there. The ruins of the Canaanite city of Jericho, the one of Joshua's day where the walls fell down, were about one mile to the north. You see, what had happened was Herod the Great decided, I want to build a new city. I want to rebuild Jericho. It's this really famous ancient city. But here's the thing. 
When God destroyed the city of Jericho, he gave the command to the people of Israel to never rebuild on that spot, never rebuild the ruins of the city. So he said, I'm going to rebuild Jericho. And Israel said, you can't do that. That's basically against our religion. So he said, fine. So he builds one mile to the north, a new city called Jericho. The problem is both places would have been referred to as Jericho. You basically got old Jericho and new Jericho. So this can create some textual confusion because it is literally possible for them to be leaving Jericho and entering Jericho at the same time. So what's happened is they've gone past the city of Jericho, the rebuilt city, And now they are entering the area where the ruins are of the other city. So they can be leaving Jericho and entering Jericho at the same time. Everybody tracking with me? Make sense? All right. So regarding the number of blind beggars, it's very simple. There were two beggars. But Mark and Luke simply focus on the one who was more vocal, who interacted with Jesus more, and who had a better response to Jesus. However you slice it, There's no discrepancies in the text around this incident or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter. Mark's gospel tells us that this man's name was Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. It was only six days from the Passover feast. And as you may know, for Passover, every able-bodied Jewish male was supposed to make the journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So the city of Jerusalem would swell to three, possibly even four million people during a feast like Passover. And as they were making their way down this road, past the two Jerichos, there would be a lot of Jews who would be eager to bump up their good deeds quota, basically on their way to Jerusalem. I know it's very Catholic actually, but they were doing this back then. They wanted to bump up their good deeds quota and so all the beggars knew this is a great time to be begging on the road because they're looking to stock up on their good deeds before they get to Jerusalem. So when someone says, How, you know, how's your spiritual life doing? Oh, great, great. Been helping the poor a lot recently, like just an hour ago. You know, it's sort of like when you see someone that you promised you would pray for and then you quickly pray before you say hi to them so that you can say, I've been praying for you. I did, I did not forget. So that's the idea. So these guys are there. Everyone's in an extra generous mood. They're no dummies. And so they've set up shop, so to speak, on this road. Verse 36. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So this blind man, Bartimaeus, hears a commotion. He hears a bunch of people walking by him at once. And he says, hey, what's going on? Verse 37. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Underline son of David and mercy. The term son of David is a messianic term. It's a term used by Jews only for the Messiah, their long expected savior. And that's important because it means Bartimaeus, who was physically unable to see, was able to somehow recognize on a spiritual level that Jesus was the Messiah. And according to the prophecy of Isaiah 35, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born on the earth, one of the things the Messiah would do is give sight to the blind. And we should be reminded, encouraged, exhorted by the example of humility here that we see in Bartimaeus. And here's what I mean. He's not pouting or sulking. He's not coming to Jesus so that he can say, finally, I've been wanting to say this to you for a long time. How come out of all the people in Israel, I'm one of the blind ones? How come that's my deal in life? 
Yeah, you better do something. It's your fault. No. You see, every single wrong thing with the world, with people, with you and I, is the result of our sin. This is not the world that God made. I can't stress this enough. This is not the world that God made. This is the wreckage of the world God made that was wrecked by us. And so Bartimaeus somehow recognizes that he's a sinner who, like you and I, doesn't deserve the kindness of God. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's an example of humility that we should all seek to emulate, remembering that every difficulty, every bit of pain in our lives is ultimately the result of sin in our world, a state of affairs that we've all contributed to. Write this down. Bartimaeus understood who Jesus was and who he was in relation to Jesus. He understood who Jesus was and who he was in relation to Jesus. That is such a key for interacting with the Lord, for relating to the Lord, to not forget that he's God. He's good. He's only ever been good. And we're not And we've all rejected him. We don't deserve anything from him. Man, when you get those things right, who God is and who we are, that just opens things up to relate to the Lord. And when Jesus is passing by your life, my life, when there's a moment when he's drawing your heart to him and he's calling you to respond in a specific way, there's always going to be voices, be the people around you or in your own mind, there's always going to be voices saying, be quiet, not now. But any voice that tells you not to cry out to Jesus never has your best interests at heart. And if you listen to that voice, you will miss out. Listen, don't believe the lie that you will get another chance later on. Jesus is a week away from his death. He will never again in his earthly life walk down this road by this city. This was the one and only chance Bartimaeus had to be touched by Jesus. This was his moment. If Jesus is calling you to respond to him in any way, in any area of your life, do it. Do it. It may be your only chance. Write this on your outlines. When Jesus calls you to respond, don't assume you'll get another opportunity. When Jesus calls you to respond, don't assume that you'll get another opportunity. You don't know if he's calling you to respond because it's the last chance to repair that relationship. Let's get as serious as we want. You don't know if he's calling you to respond because you're going to die in a car crash next week. You don't know if he's calling you to to respond now because that person needs to hear from God through you right now. You don't know if you don't respond right now, you're gonna cross some sort of line where that sin gets a hold of your life in a whole new way with a whole new power and it becomes an addiction. What does the Bible say? It says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, do not harden. Harden your hearts. If you're hearing his voice, don't take it for granted. Don't assume you're going to hear it again. 
unlike the rich young ruler who came to Jesus convinced that he was keeping the law and was a good man who basically deserved to be favored by God, Bartimaeus appeals to Jesus on the basis of mercy. Do you see the contrast there? The rich young ruler appeals to Jesus on the basis that he's a good guy. I've kept all the commands. That's his appeal. Bartimaeus appeals to Jesus' mercy. In other words, even in his appeal, he's making it clear he knows he doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. He's just appealing to the character of Jesus, believing that Jesus is merciful and has the power to heal him. That's how we're supposed to relate to Jesus. That's how we come to have a relationship with him. Not through our works, but by depending on his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his character. Both here and in the next chapter of Luke, which we're going to study next week, we're going to see examples of how the nation of Israel should have responded to Jesus by crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In both this case and the next chapter, the people who respond to Jesus correctly are going to be outcasts from society. And in both cases, they were keenly aware of their need. And because they were so aware of their need, they were able to overcome the obstacle of their pride and reach out for the help of the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 39, then those who went before, so those other people in the crowd, warned him, Bartimaeus, that he should be quiet. Underline this phrase, I love this. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, when you know that you're in a hopeless situation, when you know you're sick and it's gonna take a miracle for you to be healed, you don't care who knows that you're desperate. When you reach the place of understanding that you need Jesus and he's the only one who can save your soul, you don't care who approves or doesn't approve because you know that without Jesus, you've got no hope. They tell him to stop yelling and he responds by yelling even louder. Write this down. True desperation has no concern for appearances. True desperation has no concern for appearances. Sometimes we find ourselves in the place in life when we know a change needs to take place. We know something's gotta change in our life. We know that we need help or freedom or deliverance from something that's holding us down, destroying us from the inside out or dragging us down in life and so we cry out to God but nothing seems to happen. And the only feedback we get is feeling like the world around us is saying, keep it down. Don't disturb the status quo. But something vital is often happening in those moments because sometimes we want change in our lives, but we're not really prepared to pay the price and do what it's going to take in order for that change to happen. So what does God need to do? Well, God needs to move us to a place of desperation where we're finally willing to do whatever he asks, whatever it's gonna take to be healed. Bartimaeus is told to pipe down, but he just yells louder. And when he made the choice to yell louder, you see, he crossed this line where he could no longer be stopped by the pressure of what anybody else thought of him. He broke through that barrier because he was desperate. His desperation gave him the strength to overcome that obstacle. And sometimes there's no point in God responding to our cry because we're not yet willing to do what it's going to take to be set free, to be healed. We're not willing to end that relationship. We're not willing to give that thing up. 
We're not willing to step away from that. We're not willing to humble ourselves and apologize or serve that person. And so God in his loving kindness has to move us to the place where we're willing to agree with him and do what he asks us to do so that we can be healed. Amos 3.3 says what? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Sometimes we're crying out to God, but we don't understand that we're still in the place where we want God to agree with us and God is saying, no, you need to agree with me. And I gotta get you to the place of desperation where you understand that I'm your only hope and you're willing to do what it's going to take. Verse 40, so Jesus stood still. He just stopped in his tracks and commanded him, Bartimaeus, to be brought to him. I love this detail that Mark's gospel adds. I put it on your outline. It says, then they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And that verse is so important because it tells us what our response is supposed to be when Jesus calls us to himself. We're supposed to be full of joy. What a contrast to the rich young ruler, right? Jesus calls him, says, hey, come, follow me. But he could only think about what he would have to give up in order to follow Jesus. Then Mark adds this, and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. This garment, this cloak, would have been what kept this beggar warm at night. It was basically his only worldly possession. But in that moment, it's going to slow him down, even just a little bit, from getting to Jesus. So so he just discards it. And check this out. It's a huge act of faith because he's blind. So, So he's just leaving it, going into this crowd. There's probably a few hundred people He doesn't know that he's going to be able to find this thing again in in the crowd or that somebody's not going to steal it. So him leaving that is him saying, it's no problem, I'll just go back and get it when I can see. Huge, huge act of faith. When the rich young ruler was asked to toss aside his possessions in order to follow Jesus, he said, no thanks. When Jesus asks us to give something up, it's always because he has something better for us, something that's gonna satisfy us more deeply in this life and in eternity. Well, back to Luke. It says, and when he, the beggar, had come near, he, Jesus, asked him, saying, underline this question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The people had to be thinking, um, Take a wild guess, Jesus. He's blind, right? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. I want my eyes to be opened. In Mark's gospel, he calls Jesus Rabuni. And the only other time in scripture this title is used for Jesus is when Mary Magdalene uses it to address Jesus in the garden when she has that beautiful moment when Jesus opens her eyes to recognize who he is, that he's not the gardener, he's her risen savior. It means rabbi, teacher, master, but it goes way, 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 way deeper than that. What's also implied here is that had Israel responded to Jesus the same way, he would have healed them and opened their eyes spiritually. But the big question is, why does Jesus ask him, what do you want me to do for you? It's such an obvious question. Why does he ask when Jesus already knows the answer? Well, why does Jesus ask you and I to share our burdens and our needs with him when he already knows what we need? It's because he values and desires a relationship with us. He knows that we're much more open 
in our relationship with him when we have needs. And so he uses those times in our lives to strengthen our relationship with him. He asks us, what's on your mind? What's weighing you down? What are you burdened with, worried about? Let's talk about it. Because we need to be reminded and trained over and over and over again to go to God with our needs. Why? Because I don't know if you've noticed this about yourself. But our natural tendency is to go to anything else. Food, an unhealthy relationship, porn, alcohol, TV, the internet. Before we go to God. We need to learn over and over again to go with God when we have a need. That's why Jesus is asking Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Write this down. When we go to God with our needs, it builds our relationship and reliance on him. It builds our relationship and reliance on him. We need to be trained and conditioned to go to God rather than some other cheap imitation of a coping mechanism. We need to be trained to go to God. And we're reminded that we need him. Every time we confess, God, God, I have a need. I'm struggling with this. I'm weighed down by this. I'm burdened by this. Every time we remind ourselves that we need God, things get put back in their proper place and we grow in our relationship with him. Jesus also wanted this man to be specific just as he wants you and I to be specific. Why? Because specificity in our prayers is an indicator of faith. You see, it's easy to use spiritual sounding things as a cop out. You can't pay your bills, but you pray, Lord, what I want is to just be in your will. You see, that sounds nice. But what we're really doing is we're just building in our excuse for when God doesn't answer our prayers so that we can just say, well, I guess it was just the will of the Lord. Instead of just being honest with God and saying, ah, I need my bills paid. I got a situation here. I need, I need help. You see, specific prayers reveal our faith. Write that down. Specific prayers reveal our faith. And here's the thing. If your prayer isn't answered, then your faith is revealed by trusting God's character, that he has our best interests at heart. But we don't need to build in an escape hatch to explain things if our prayer doesn't get answered. We don't need to be like, I'm gonna ask for this, but I'm gonna build in the explanation to my prayer. Lord, would you please provide this? You know, unless it's not your will, then that's fine, I'm cool with that too. Just tell him what you need, and if you don't get it, just trust his character. You don't need to build in an excuse. We're really not honoring God with that. When Bartimaeus asked for his sight to be restored, he honored Jesus because his very request revealed his belief that Jesus could restore his sight. Do you notice Bartimaeus doesn't say, hey, you know what, whatever you want, Jesus is, is cool. I'm just your servant. He says, I'm blind. I would love to see. I would love to see. And in asking for that, he's letting Jesus know, I believe you can actually do that for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be asking. Matthew's gospel tells us Jesus had compassion on the man. We don't ever want to miss the wonderful character of who God is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? He's like Jesus. His motivations are just, they're just wonderful. Verse 42, then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Underline this, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. Now we read this as one of many miracles in the Bible, but don't ever let this become ordinary to you. This is a man who was blind, two men who were blind, 
probably their whole lives. And in a moment, after one interaction with Jesus, they have perfect sight. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? And then there's this incredible statement, not from the mouth of some prosperity preacher, but from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. The word well is actually the Greek word sozo. And if you've heard this before, you'll know the word sozo means saved or made whole. It refers to the whole sphere of salvation, not just going to heaven or being saved from your sin, but the process of God going to work in your life and making you whole. So when Jesus says your faith has made you well, he's literally saying your faith in me has saved your soul and is also the reason you've been physically healed as well. Not only was his blindness healed, but his soul was saved, and both were accomplished the same way, by faith in Jesus. By simply asking Jesus to have mercy on him, this man revealed he believed Jesus would have mercy on him. It proved his faith. Now let's remember, just to balance things out, Jesus healed people in so many different ways. Sometimes they had no idea who he was. So we can't just simply say, well, this man was healed because he recognized who Jesus was. Jesus healed some people who had no idea who he was. He just showed up and said, you want to be healed? Be healed. There was no faith on their part. Sometimes like here, it's clear that their faith was the main ingredient in the healing. And sometimes the lack of faith that Jesus encountered made him unable to do the miracles that he could have done. You remember when he visited his hometown of Nazareth, the Bible records he could do only a few miracles there because of their lack of faith. He wanted to do more, but they were opposed to him doing more. They didn't have the faith, and it inhibited his ability to work in their lives in some way that we can't quite fully grasp. Faith that God will heal you of a physical ailment doesn't mean it's guaranteed to happen. If it's not what's best for you or I, from heaven's perspective and eternal perspective, the Lord won't do it because he's good. However, a lack of faith that God can or will heal you can cause us to miss out on a miracle when the Lord wants to do one. It's very clear in scripture. We actually did a full study on this and so rather than take extra time today, I just put the link on your outlines. There's a whole message you can go listen to if you don't remember it on the relationship between faith and miracles and how that all plays out. You don't want to go too far in either direction and we don't want to pretend that faith doesn't matter because clearly it matters greatly. Verse 43, and immediately he received his sight and, and then underline this, followed him glorifying God. Followed him glorifying God. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, go your way. And then we're told that he followed Jesus. I, I love this. So Jesus says, you're healed, go your way. And the man's response is basically, you are the way. You are the way. I just want to follow you. That's where I'm going now. So different to the rich young ruler. For you see, the rich young ruler was being held back in life, just like Bartimaeus. He was sick, just like Bartimaeus. He was captive to his ailment, just like Bartimaeus. The only difference is that his sickness was money, possessions, wealth, that had swallowed up all his focus to the point where he was consumed by the pursuit of wealth. He didn't own wealth, wealth owned him. And Jesus showed up in his life and says, let's get you free, let's get you healed, let's get you truly living. And we know that the rich young ruler declined Jesus' invitation, more focused on what he would have to give up than what he would gain by following Jesus. 
which would have been everything. This man, however, puts his faith in Jesus. He casts aside his cloak, the thing that would slow him down, and comes to Jesus as quickly as possible. And his faith in Jesus leads to him being set free, and he gladly follows Jesus, praising God and giving him glory for what Jesus has done in his life. Jesus invites the rich young ruler to follow him, and he doesn't. Jesus doesn't even invite Bartimaeus to follow him. It's just what he wants to do. It's such a contrast. You see, when a person has truly placed their faith in Jesus, they can no longer go their own way. And I don't mean it's impossible for them to go their own way. I just mean once you've seen Jesus, once you've been touched by Jesus, you just can't not follow him if you've had a real encounter with him. You don't want to go your own way. You look at him and you say, you, you are the way. There is no other way. When a person has truly placed their faith in Jesus, they're going to have a desire to praise and glorify him. Simply put, they're going to have a desire to thank him. If there's no desire to thank God or, or praise him, then there's probably not really an understanding of what he's done for us. If there's no desire to follow Jesus, then there hasn't really been a surrender of the will, which is necessary for salvation. We can't say, I recognize you as God while keeping the throne of our lives for ourselves. You can't do that. So write this down. When there's been an inward change in our lives, it'll show up on the outside too. When there's been an inward change in our lives, it'll show up on the outside too. And I don't mean that you're suddenly perfect, but I mean you start following Jesus. And when we start, man, we got a lot of junk with us, but we're still following him dragging all our junk behind us, slowly getting rid of it as he works in our lives. Then it says, and all the people when they saw it, underline, gave praise to God. Do you remember what we read at the end of last week from Ephesians 1? We read how our heavenly father predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What's the outcome that God wants from the grace and the goodness that he pours out on your life and my life? What does he hope to accomplish? Well, his hope is that those that don't know him will look at your life and my life and see the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God at work, see it change our lives. And as they do that, they will begin to see who God is and that he is good and that he is kind and they might come to know him. His grace at work in our lives is his way of revealing himself to the people in our lives. We're built to be his billboards. I'm gonna wrap up with this, with just a handful of questions. Next week we're gonna tie this all together in a neat and tidy way. But I just want to ask you a few questions. If you're getting no response from God to a prayer request that you're making, trust his character. Maybe we don't know what we're asking. Or perhaps we're not yet at the place of desperation where we would be willing to do what the Lord is going to ask us to do. If that's you, you know, I wish I could tell you, decide today to be ready. I wish I could tell you that, but we can't just make that choice. We have to be brought 
to that place by the Lord. There are some changes God wants to make in our lives that we will only accept him making once we realize that there is no other way. There is no other path. It has to be the Lord's way. So if you're in that place, I would instead encourage you to take communion, breathe deeply, exhale, and simply pray, I trust you, Lord. Do what you need to do in my life in order to get me to where I need to be so that I can be in agreement with you and you can get this done in my life. Just embrace the process. Just say, God, come finish the work that you started, just like you said you would. If Jesus is calling you to respond in a specific area of your life, do it today. Obey him. Don't assume there's going to be another chance. Don't make that assumption. Then I want to challenge us with this question. Are we dishonoring the Lord by going to coping mechanisms rather than going to him with our needs? When you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed out, what's your go-to? You know what it is. I know what it is for me. What what are your go-tos? What are the things that you go to even before you go to God? Maybe today you need to take communion and just repent for doing that and let the Lord know, Father, I know the way is open so that I can come to you to find grace and help in my time of need. And then take that need to the Lord. Take that need to the Lord today. And then lastly, let's be worshipers, even in this coming time, who remember who we are and who Jesus is. We're we're sinners saved by grace. We don't deserve the kindness of God, but he's poured it out on us anyway. Let's express that gratitude in praise together as we worship in just a few minutes' time. I've said this before. Any worship leader, all we should need to say to get us fired up to worship is just, hey, everybody in here is still saved. Everybody in here is still saved by the mercy and grace of God. Yes? Okay, then I assume we're all stoked and fired up to say thank you to God this morning. There's no other reason we need. We've been saved. We belong in the family of God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Today is a great time to just say thank you, to rejoice and be glad. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just shine a light on the area of our lives where we need to respond to you. Father, perhaps we just need to be reminded of the joy of our salvation and have that restored this morning. For those who need that in a fresh new way, I pray that you would do it, Holy Spirit. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Father, where we've run to cheap imitations coping mechanisms instead of you where we could have been healed and set free and made whole again. Father, forgive us. The way is open. The veil is torn and we can come to you boldly for anyone who's burdened today, Lord. We pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would find strength and peace and wholeness in your presence this morning, Lord God. Father, help us to respond. If there's something you're asking us to do, help our response to simply be, yes, Lord. What a special thing it is that the God of the universe would speak to us through his spirit, would lead us and guide us, 
towards life and freedom. May we not take your voice and the leading of your spirit for granted. We're lost without you. Lead us and guide us. Father, just as a man, I pray this morning for the heart of a servant, God, the place of a slave, recognizing in your example that greatness is not desiring to be served, but seeking to serve. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to follow your example, to let go of selfish ambition and instead strive to be great in your kingdom. Lord, would you free us from vain ambitions, from a desire for recognition or glory or authority or power and replace it with a desire to be used by you, to represent you, the one who washed the feet of his disciples and serve them with your body and with your blood. Help us to be like you, Jesus. Help us to be like you, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.